All right, this is the Yay with uh, Reg Clay and normally Norman G. However, Norman is uh, out on date night with his wonderful wife Mara. So, uh, actually, Norman and I will uh, have a show tomorrow. But today, Friday, the 15th, I have Cecilia Palmtag. How are you, Cecilia? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Reg. Um, you are the. According to Facebook, you're the Artistic Associate at Velocity Circus. Is that still true? Mm, yes. Yeah, because uh, it's freelance work. It's um, uh, You can continue to be an Artistic Associate for a great long time, um, just depending on the projects that come up. So Yeah. And we'll talk a little more about Velocity Circus. And also, you've been a part of um, Ragged Wing for Flight Deck. Mm-hmm. And I believe you're a member of Off-Broadway West. I know you acted for Off-Broadway West. Were you a member as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for about five years. Yeah. So you've done a lot. I mean, you've been, uh, you're a fantastic actress. I stage manage you for Head of Gobbler and stage manage for you as a director for Lifetimes 3. And I know you've done a bunch of other uh, things. Um, I mean, I consider you a career actress. I mean, would you consider that as well? Um, theater has been my chosen career for the last 15, 17 years, yeah. Yeah, yeah, as, as with, with a lot of us. Um, it's, it's amazing how we've had the guests on and we talk about how theater, what theater means to us and why we sort of need it in our lives or whatever. Um, I guess we could just sort of jump into it. I mean, how did you get involved in theater? Well, when you're about 14, 15 years old, mm-hmm. people start asking the question about what you want to do with the rest of your life. Yeah. And for me, it was a pretty simple equation of what uh, what do I want to do for 40 to 60 hours a week, Yeah. 50 weeks a year, mm-hmm. for the next 50 years of my life. <laughs> yeah. Um, and at that point, there was only one thing that I was excited to do that much, mm-hmm. which was theater. Did you do theater when you were a child? Like, uh, I know... Um like, I got started in the church, and a lot of other kids uh, did, like, let's say, theater in elementary school, that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, there, there were little classroom plays and uh, ballet when I was a kid, and mm-hmm. um, and at Grandma's dinners on Sunday evening, I would uh, I would choreograph dance pieces. Oh, wow! <laughs> That's cool. Did you grow up here? Um, I did. I grew up I grew up in Watsonville, Santa Cruz, Santa Cruz County. Okay. Um, yeah. Awesome. And are you the, do, do you have any siblings? I do. I have three brothers. Okay. So I'm imagining you did the um, the ballet for your grandma. Where, did your brothers get involved to you or is this you? <laughs> I, uh, the last show that I dragged my brothers into, um, actually, uh, my brother Mark, um, he he had done some work with uh, Great Angelo and Velocity Circus. Is um, that right? Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. He had a great time doing that. Um, but I I started dragging them into my endeavors. Like, I had them on stage when I was 17 and directing and producing a show. (laughs) Well, that's awesome. I mean, I would have, you know, as I would have figured they would have said, no, the hell no, I want to, you know, do sports or something like that. But, you know, they, they, uh, they, they dive right in. And you're the oldest, is that right? Uh, I'm the middle. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Um, What, uh, what college training did you have? Formal training did you have for, for theater? Yeah, so um, so I spent uh, about four years at community college at Cabrillo um, mm-hmm. after leaving high school early, um, and I trained there with Sarah Albertson, um, Marsha Taylor Croft, and um, uh, and um, a, a f- Wilma Chandler and a few other um, 
uh, a few other really great teachers. Um, and that was where I first got a, a feeling of what it was like to be in a large auditorium, you know, a several hundred seat theater. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and also working on local productions um, in Santa Cruz at the Actors Theater. So I trained, uh, I trained formally at Cabrillo College um, quite a bit. And I tried to get a very broad experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so not only training... Um, training with text and my voice and in space, but also um, directing and uh, producing in front of house as well. Um, mm. And at that point, I was also the uh, I was the president of the drama club. Mm. Took it over from a friend of mine, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and I was producing open mics and art installations and. Wow, you're doing all sorts of stuff. Yeah, play yeah. festivals and stuff. So. Very, very, very cool. Um, there's one. It's it's. When I when I stage managed you for Lifetimes Three, I noticed that um, we did a lot of movement. You had the actors, especially during the rehearsal process, uh, deal with movement. And I thought to myself, because I remember being at NYU, there are several divisions of uh, of Tisch School of the Arts. There's there's the Experimental Theater Wing. There's Stella Adler. There's uh, Circle and Square, which I was involved in, and a lot of things that you had the actors do. Uh, during the rehearsal process, it reminded me a lot of ETW, the Experimental Theater Wing, where mm. movement had uh, it was very, very important. Did you want to talk more about, I guess, the technique or the things that you just believe in? Sure. So um, one of my mentors is uh, Bill Peters, um, and he he incorporated a great deal of viewpoints and ensemble movement. And um, we did a production of uh, uh, Charles Dickinson's um, Hard Times. Mm-hmm. And uh, and using almost, I think we we had like a screen. There was like a curtain that came across the stage, and there were there were some props. But it was um, what I learned from Bill was incorporating physical um, physicality and expressiveness. It, mm-hmm. It's a, it's a vocabulary yeah. that you can use to um, create an environment, create an atmosphere, create a rhythm that translates to the audience immediately mm-hmm. um, so you can you can tell so much um, just by using movement um, and you can convey character you can convey environment story yeah. so so Bill Peters was my first kind of exposure into that mm-hmm. and then there were several other uh, diving into viewpoints more deeply and training in Suzuki and mm-hmm. um, uh, just learning to use that my instrument um, yeah, it was it was really liberating to know that there was so much that could be communicated, just physically. I mean, because theater is a wonderful multidisciplinary form. Absolutely, I was thinking about Susan Evans. Um, she's a director, and she's uh, at the uh, the town the- town town hall theater, and she's directed me several times. And she uses a lot of gesture work in a lot of um, the productions that we've done that uh, that I've acted for her for, where we get out of our usual, uh, I guess, movements as people. Like, you know, let's say if I'm in the 17th century, I would move differently than, let's say, in the 20th century, 21st century. Or let's say uh, she would associate a word from our, um, from our, from let's say a speech, a monologue or whatever, a dialogue that we have, and associate it with a gesture. Did you, did you learn anything about gesture work, um, I guess, in, in training, or was it more, more in-depth? Um, well, specific 
so gesture is one of the things that you explore when you're working in, in viewpoints. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there can be a lot um, a lot that you can convey. So going back to the example of, uh, mm-hmm. of hard times, there um, one of the environments that we were creating was an industrial manufacturing um, environment. Mm-hmm. So, so we would we would explore the different um, the different gestures that would be um, a part of the reality of those of the people living there, sure. working in that environment. So, yeah. um, so if you if you're able to um, uh, to incorporate something concrete and realistic, mm-hmm. then the audience gets it. It's shorthand. Sure, sure. And you create the environment without needing a giant um, a giant mill. Yeah, I mean, the actors could become the mill. I mean, you know, almost mm-hmm. just, uh, you know, act as if they were machines. So, yeah, and I'm definitely fascinated by that. I, I A lot of young actors, especially when they come out of school, there, there are some actors who learn, not necessarily from school, but, but from actual experiences. And unfortunately, they, they lose a lot of, let's say, what they were taught, or let's say, you know, the... Um, exercises, like vocal exercises or movement exercises or what have you. And uh, it's, it's important to, to hold on to these things, like to hold on to, um, I guess what I'm trying to say is there's some actors that take the, the work for granted, or they just say, well, I just need to learn the lines and learn the blocking, and, and that's it. Um, do you find that to be true? Do you find that um, a lot of the theater, I guess general theater, um, that, that some actors can run the risk of being lazy, of not doing the work they needed to do. Sure. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it's, it's an unfortunate reality um, that p- part of it might be, as you say, laziness. And mm-hmm. part of it is, um, uh, part of it is I, I don't know, maybe a lack of inspiration for the particular piece. Or, mm-hmm. um, but uh, recently... You know, when your fellow actor does their work mm-hmm. and they show up and they're present with you with all of that work that they have done. Yeah. And, I mean, y- you're able to create something so much more alive, something electric, something something that the, that conveys to the audience. I mean, th- you cannot, you cannot shortchange y- your audience in that way. Because Absolutely, yeah. Th- it's, it's a gift that they are there with you. Mm-hmm. And... To take advantage of them in such a way that you're you're just regurgitating what you memorized, it's yeah. Um, I think it's a tremendous disservice. And, yeah. And some people don't understand. Um, they haven't had the the, the full training um, to know what it what the text can hold and how tricky and multi layered the job of acting is. Right. Um, and I think <clears throat> I think in order to do actually do the job of acting. It's uh, um, it's so multifaceted and uh, and it's tricky. It's tricky even if you have had your training and you do take your work seriously. Sure, sure. And that, and really, that's what rehearsal is all about. It's not just you know, let's say getting off book and uh, connecting with uh, the your actor, you know, the, your your scene partner. But it's also diving into the text and finding out through your body and through you, through your movement, through you know, uh, through your entire instrument what you can get out. I mean, what you can get out of the text. Norman and I, we were talking about Tender Napalm. I don't know if you've heard or heard about that, but it's a um, piece uh, Robert Estes had uh, directed it, but only two people on stage. Yet, 
I haven't seen it, but you know Norman had seen it, uh, and he talks about how the actors just incorporated the entire body. I mean, it was really it, 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 they were almost like athletes mm-hmm. um, who just incorporated everything, and they put their entire body and soul into it. And it was just a mesmerizing experience, and I think that's sort of what you're talking about. Yes, to be fully activated, and you know, if you're doing a challenging role, you mm-hmm. have to you have to incorporate. Everything. It, it is athletic. I absolutely agree. Mm-hmm. In order to maintain that constant energy, to fill a space with your presence, to be able to, to use your voice appropriately mm-hmm. um, without, you know, blowing it out. If you have a great role and you have some demanding text, then you run the risk of blowing your voice out, you know, or oh, if sure. you're performing in an outdoor amphitheater or whatnot, you really, it is athletic. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Do you enjoy um, acting more than directing? I mean, what what aspect of theater do you enjoy the most? That's a really good question. When I was uh, when I was at San Francisco State, that was um, uh, that was a tricky question as well because at a certain point you have to decide what your emphasis is going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so i I prefer I prefer performing. Um, I there is uh, there's a um, there's a wonderful. Uh, type of creativity that a director has mm-hmm. um, and I really appreciate collaborating in the way that a director collaborates um, and to be able to see both the analytical and logistical elements of, uh, of a piece and, mm-hmm. the, and, um, and the human arcs as well mm-hmm. um, uh, but I I think that my talent is is m- much closer to being like a pure actor. Um, so, yeah, I do. Did I answer the question? <laughs> no, I think you did. And, you know, you, you've been very, vers- like I said, I've seen you as an actor and also as a director. And I know that you do administrative stuff as well. Like, um, you know, you, you, we had talked off mic about uh, the flight deck and mm-hmm. we were talking about gentrification and, you know, and contracts and how some theater companies, um, Sometimes they fold because they, you know, their 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 rents go up and and that sort of stuff. And you've had to negotiate contracts and that sort of stuff. So you can do all sorts of things. I think that you're multifaceted, but your real love is acting. I mean, you know, that's what you really really love to do. Yeah, it's uh, it, it there's a um, a really profound satisfaction that comes with the challenges from acting mm-hmm. um, and from that. Uh, um, uh, as we were saying earlier, that athleticism, it's like, it, it kind of feels like a runner's high at the end of a show where yeah. if you've done, if you've done your work and you've let it all, all, all out on stage, you've left it on stage, mm-hmm. then, um, uh, then it, it's really liberating. And it's so, it's so satisfying to be able to embody somebody's, somebody's story who, mm-hmm. um, by the nature of the work that we do, the stories are usually very heightened. Yeah. Um, and so you get to live a life that is, um, that's fully realized, either positively or negatively, or, or you you get to explore parts of humanity, which is something that I love to do, and mm-hmm. I love to um, uh, to kind of like find all of the different pockets in the pomegranate. Sure, sure. Um, so sure, discover the whole universe of that character, and also the play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, to have permission to go somewhere else for a little while. Yeah. I want to talk a lot about women's issues. We've had a couple of women um, actresses and also directors, and to get the women's perspective. But before I do that, um, tell me a little bit about Velocity Circus. Oh, um, sure. So uh, Velocity Circus is an arts organization that's driven by Greg Angelo Herrera, um, who is the artistic director and also the um, the proprietor, the sole proprietor. Um, 
and uh, it's it's kind of like an artistic hub driven by Greg Angelo's vision. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there are several different types of events. It's uh, an event company, um, basically, um, and uh, corporate events, public events, private events. Um, and uh, with Greg Angelo, I've done some character clowning for him and uh, fortune telling. But my main work with Greg Angelo was doing logistical work um, on site, site management, um, coordinating with clients, and um, uh, and drafting contracts and putting together um, mm-hmm. uh, talent packages. Um, so basically, designing events. Yeah, there's some of that versatility in you again, <laughs> doing the administrative stuff. So it sounds like Velocity Circuits is more for, is it for corporate events or is it for the general public as well? I mean, do they do? Yeah, so um, when I worked with Greg Angelo um, really consistently, um, I stepped back recently to go back to school. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I worked with Greg Angelo, um, uh, one of my main clients was the DeYoung Museum. And I worked, uh, I worked with other museums as well, but... That's a really great example of when we would we would augment their um, opening nights or their first Fridays, or mm-hmm. their Friday nights, um, with uh, with our talent. So a summer of love. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the the last package that I worked on with them, uh, designing an event, designing talent for um, for openings, and they would have like member events and they would have like public events um, and. Uh, and then they had uh, donor gala events as well. And so depending on what the exhibition was that mm-hmm. we were programming for, what was the art, I actually love working with the museums because it, um, y- the curators come to you and they say, so we're working on Picasso. I'm like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I put together a circus package for Picasso. Oh, nice. So you can, you can base the theme on, I guess, you know, whatever the, the museum's doing. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. I, um, one of my favorite things that I worked with, um, I worked on, created, actually, uh-huh. um, was uh, was a treasure hunt for their 10th anniversary in the new building. So mm-hmm. um, it was a performance-driven treasure hunt um, where the characters were associated with these riddle pieces mm-hmm. um, at these particular um, gal- in, in, you know, located in a specific gallery with a specific piece of artwork and the people were mm-hmm. going around trying to identify all of the pieces <laughs> oh, that's of artwork. Awesome. So I think I would, I, would, I would enjoy that. Yeah. So. Yeah. And it's also interactive. I mean, people go into the, and the, the museum or the, um, the gallery expecting just to watch a, um, you know, a, um, um, a, a piece of art. But now they're, they're more actively involved in what's going on. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Very, very cool. So let's, I want, um, as far as women's issues are concerned, we had a guest, uh, Radhika Rao, and she brought up something that I've been meaning to talk. I've been trying to get more and more ladies uh, on the show just to uh, get um, a female perspective. So she had talked about um, misogyny uh, in the um, in the rehearsal space. She had been involved in a, um, a production, I think it was Macbeth, and she was Lady Macbeth. And um, I guess there was a kissing scene, an intimate scene. And the director let the rehearsal process go on for a long time, and she was very uncomfortable. And the um, the stage manager didn't really check in. No one really checked in. And she felt that it was a bit exploitative. Um, that's the feeling that I got as well. Have you ever had to deal with any of that at all? Hmm. Um, I've heard of that. Uh, I've heard of other people um, being in similar situations in scenes that involve nudity or mm. um, or whatnot. And I have um, uh, for um, 
for a more experimental devised theater piece, um, you know, I have like incorporated nudity into performance pieces and, um, uh, and like also had, uh, romantic, um, romantic scenes with other partners. But, um, I have, I've had the good fortune of not, of being in a room with people who I felt were my peers. Okay. So I have, uh, they earned your trust. Yeah, very, yes, and they were, you know, sensitive and compassionate and, like, very respectful. Mm-hmm. Um, so so it, it's, a diff- it's a very different, um, like with Ragged Wing, we, mm-hmm. um, there were several, several periods where we were workshopping and exploring, especially for Red Wolf when we were doing the development. And Red Wolf was all about, um, it was all about uh, femininity um, uh, and sexuality and, um, and, you know, gender balance, imbalance. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we were doing the development of that, uh, of that new piece, mm-hmm. um, we absolutely explored many different things around sexuality, around nudity, around... Um, uh, but in that space, it was... Um, there was a profound shared vulnerability. Everyone in the space was taking a risk. Mm-hmm. So... Um, so I haven't, uh, I haven't experienced what you're. Dis- uh, actually, <laughs> I think it was, uh, I think it was more neglect than it was. Um, uh, I think <laughs> my friend is going to kill me for this. Um, we don't mention any names at all. <laughs> and actually, I, you know, when when uh, when Radhika was talking, uh, I d- I didn't get the sense that it was exploitative. I guess it was just. Maybe the director was so into, I guess, the scene that he, I'm assuming it was a he, didn't check in to say, hey, are you okay, or whatever. So it may have been neglect as well. Mm. But in any case, tell me about what, what happened with you. Right. It's unfortunate that she didn't feel like she, she was empowered to say, hey, guys, I need a break. This right. is not cool. I'm right. done. I've hit my limit. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, and that, it, it's, it's even, it's the freedom. There were several times when we were workshopping Red Wolf um, mm-hmm. that, uh, that I was like, Hey guys, this is the limit for me. I'm not going to be able to go somewhere else, or or this is something that if this happened, I would feel more comfortable. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so so there was definitely uh, at any time that I felt uncomfortable, I also felt like I had permission to voice that. Okay. So um, so that like not being able to state that boundary, that's um, that's kind of more concerning to me than sure. than the actual sure. boundary being found. Yeah. Um, because everyone's got a different boundary in terms of, like, what yeah. in the work and what they and feel. It, and it sounds like at Ragged Wing, there was no real hierarchy. I mean, you, it didn't feel like, oh, my God, you know, someone's going to get mad at me if I say this or say that. I mean, you felt that you were among peers. Yeah, absolutely. And there, there's also this, um, a, a, an explicit consensuality to everything that you do. Mm-hmm. Um, so if there was... You basically have opt in to yeah. whatever is going on. Okay. Um, so, and the agreement is shared. But everyone knows that from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And, and that's important, you know, to communicate. Hey, listen, this is what the play is all about. Yeah, but it's a really great point uh, in terms of, um, like, at what point does um, so? Right now, I'm working on the speakeasy, mm-hmm. and um, and it's a, it's uh, it's a really volatile question because in the 1920s, it's set in 1923, mm, in the okay. 1920s. Um, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a very cool production. Mm-hmm. Um, but it takes place and there are lots of gender dynamics that are exploitive mm-hmm. um, within the narrative arc because uh, because it, it's the reality. Sure. It's the reality of, of 
women's lives and women's roles mm-hmm. in that time were um, uh, they were a lot more vulnerable. Um, not that women are still very vulnerable, um, but it's integrated into the show and into the arcs. Um, it, it's present. It's ever present. Mm-hmm. Um, and it raises a lot of questions in terms of like, where do you, where, uh, at what point is the storytelling, um, serving to bring awareness? At what point is it like, uh, kind of confirming, uh, confirming deep seated, um, yeah, it sounds like there's, a, there's like a line, maybe an invisible line, and you want to get close to the line, but not crossing the line of, okay, this is going beyond the story. And into right. maybe being exploitative or, or what have you, or right. it, it, it's going it's going beyond what the story needs. Mm-hmm. And at the Speakeasy, um, the management has responded to um, to a couple of like uncomfortable backstage experiences mm-hmm. um, by uh, by organizing a women's meeting. So now, like on a regular basis, the women get together and, and express what's um, what their concerns are. And it's also it's also really important to empower, especially the younger performers who are coming on, the younger women who are coming sure. on, um, and uh, making sure that they have the tools that they need when um, when audience members or other performers, which is much less frequent, it's it's actually uh, more typically audience members mm-hmm. who, will, who will cross the line and, and uh, disrespect a performer. So it sounds like the speakeasy, they are, the audience interacts with the actors, is that what's going on? Uh, so it's immersive theater, and okay. there are some opportunities within the speakeasy for interaction. Okay. But uh, but the show is uh, primarily uh, voyeuristic. Okay. Um, so the audience uh, the audience is in the space, and there's many different story arcs that are happening all around them. Got it. Um, but uh, but their job is to watch. Right. I understand. I, I totally understand. There was a I'm thinking there was a production that I stage managed. Debbie does Dallas the musical, and I'm looking at the poster right there. Where an audience member unfortunately got a little too excited, and um, I had to tell him to uh, zip it up. Um, so it happens. I mean, you know, there are some uh, audience members that get a little too uh, carried away. Now, you mentioned th- that you, you had to have a meeting or th- there had to have been a meeting among women. Did something happen backstage or was it just um, something yeah. that was necessary? So there was a, the way that it was, uh, I was not involved in, okay. in it, but um, uh, the way that it was described was um, one of the performers uh, preferred to, to his process was to maintain his character backstage. Okay. So Sounds method to me. The, yeah, to, you know, some, <laughs> some version of method. Sure, sure. Um, but, uh, uh, but in that he was, um, uh, he was crossing boundaries with, mm. with the other performers mm. that he was sharing the backstage with. So yeah. there, I mean, it's, uh, you share space when you, yeah. when you're backstage. Backstage is always it's you know it's never big enough of course, um, of course, to have yeah. to have the perfect privacy or right. whatnot. So right. um, so there's always there are always things that you're navigating around and right. um, and in facilitating the meeting on a regular basis, mm-hmm. then you onboard everybody and make sure that they have the voice. Going back to the concern of sure um, the concern of, of your recent uh, guest yeah. Um, uh, I, 
I there will always be boundaries crossed. Mm-hmm. Um, it's whether or not people have the um, the confidence they feel secure enough in their environment yeah. and, and feel like they're being heard by the leaders of that environment, right? By right. the community to, to say like, hey guys, this is this needs to be changed. Yeah. Or and it's interesting that you mentioned young actresses and really just young actors and actresses mm-hmm. because when you come out of school. You just want to be involved. I mean, you want to get cast and you want to be involved in a production. And you don't really think about your own safety mm-hmm. or your own rights. Um, and I'm sure you've dealt with, you know, when you were coming out of school, did you deal with directors who um, may have overstepped the boundaries? Not necessarily in a misogynistic way, but just to uh, have you do things that you were uncomfortable doing. Hmm. Um, that's a really good question. I think... Uh, mm, I have, I'm the kind of person that tends to um, uh, choose an organization and then work with them for a, a chunk mm-hmm. of time. Yeah. So I think recently my shortest time commitment has been five years <laughs> with the company. So you've chosen well. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And in that, you know, in that there are definitely things mm-hmm. that I take on that, that, uh, that, have seemed to ask more of me yeah. putting out than I receive. Yeah. Um, but that's more of, but everything was transparent and it was on the table when I yeah. decided to take something on. Yeah. So It sounds like you're the type of actress that you don't just, let's say, do auditions or whatever, but you actually join a company. I mean, you've joined at least three companies um, so far, mm-hmm. maybe even more. And that's that's different because there are a lot of actors who are like, I don't want to join a company. I just getting I, yeah. <laughs> and I respect that. And it yeah. takes a lot of chutzpah. And, um, you know, like I think I – think, um, I kind of, I have, maybe my tolerance for rejection is not quite as high as some people, or um, maybe I just, uh, I, don't, I don't know. So my preference, though, is to find a family and to, you know, uh, and to grow with that. Yeah. Um, until until I'm ready to find something new, so. Yeah, and Norman and I, we've talked about that, the theater being a community and that concept which we think should be a concept that everyone should have. A lot of people don't have. The, the, a lot of people say, well, let me audition, do these shows, do these shows, fill up my resume, and then let me go to New York or, you know, California or L.A. and be famous and, you know, get my equity thing or whatever. Have you thought about moving on to, I don't know, the screen or television or, or I don't know, something bigger? Or people, what people could perceive as being bigger? Mm-hmm. Um, so... Yes, it has crossed my mind, and yes, um, there uh, there have been periods in my life when um, when I've wanted to get more serious about that. Um, there there was a major life event, life change that happened to me um, a while ago. Uh, I became a mom. <laughs> yeah. You're, um, yeah, shoot, I've, uh, yeah, I know he's five years old. I'm trying to remember. Um, um, Mike, starts with M. Yes. <laughs> uh, Marius. Marius, yes. Yeah. Um, so, so at that time, I was uh, 27 years old when um, when I became a mom, mm-hmm. and that's kind of when I auditioned for ART. Um, they they explicitly said you have to be younger than a certain age, otherwise your chances of establishing yourself as a professional actor are vanishingly small Mm. so um so at a certain point i realized hey that window is closing for me um so in terms of becoming like a mainstream broadway um actor like that that's not um that's not really in the cards for me okay um but uh, theater is 
a part of my life, a, you know, an essential part of my life. So, mm-hmm. so I'm going to continue working on it, and I absolutely want to continue to um, to increase the quality of, um, uh, like, maintain a very high quality of work that I'm uh, that I'm working on mm-hmm. and investing my time and energy with um, with people who take their work seriously and also finding models that are successful um, that are successful and thriving because it's it's a tremendous amount of uh, mental and emotional pressure when you're working with a model um, like a business model sure. that uh, that's so broken um, that it really right. strains the art so so that is another after you know working in the field for long enough like being able to recognize Basically, does this company have its stuff together? That's right. Can can yeah. can they produce without having without having the extra stress of um, of wondering whether or not they can buy their costumes? Right, right, exactly. That, yeah, that's a very good point. Now, as far as being a mother and also being an actress, I don't think Marius has slowed you down at all. I mean, you're still working, but I'm, it, I'm sure it has to be very difficult. I mean, how do you balance? And I think this is one thing that you wanted to talk about. Um, on the A, how do you balance motherhood and being an actress? Um, well, I'm I'm in a really um, uh, I'm in a really fortunate position um, of uh, having a co-parent, um, and for many years we were partners as well. Um, uh, having a partner who who chose a profession that allowed you know that allowed like a stability, like financial stability. So mm-hmm. so the work that I continue to do um, is. Uh, it's not. It's not for financial. I'm. I'm not doing it to pay the bills. Right. Um, and uh, that actually was a huge contention between the two of us. Mm. Um, well, uh, yeah. I tell you. I mean, I've, I've had. You know, uh, I've never been married, but I've had girlfriends, ex-girlfriends, or whatever say, "Hey, you know, are you getting paid?" I'm like, "Well, a little." Well, why are you doing it if you're not getting paid? And they don't quite understand. It's very difficult for partners to understand the love of theater and uh, why we spend so much time, especially cue-to-cues and texts and all that sort of stuff, and coming home at 12 midnight just for the love of it or, you know, to ex- to, to express yourself. I mean, you know, you can't put a value on art. And it's, it's tough getting someone to understand that. Yeah, it's, a, it's interesting when you say, like, oh, I, I'm... I, I'm I do this 40 hours a week because it's my quality of life. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I, I don't, Yeah. in terms of, I don't think there is a way to convey it unless somebody has a consuming passion. Well, sure. Well, I guess you just have to tell them up front, hey, listen, this is what I'm all about. This is what I'm really, really all about. And then, you, you know, you'll find out from there uh, how things are going. And also, it cuts also into the companies that you're with. You have to tell a company, listen, you know, my rehearsal time is very, very valuable. You know, I have, to, I have a child. So, mm-hmm. and you'd hate to have, you know, let's say you're called in for a rehearsal and let's say you're not doing anything for two hours or what have you because there's another scene going on and, you know, you could be doing other things. I mean, do you have to tell other companies, listen, I I have a child, so um, I just want you to keep that in mind. Yeah. So when I take on projects, that's something that I definitely consider. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the the commitment has to be um, either flexible enough or um, uh, or short term enough, or there has to be parameters, really right. clear parameters, right. um, and also. Um, uh, and absolutely, like letting letting the leadership know, like the, this is a reality in my life. Um, so it's a limitation, and mm-hmm. it's. I mean, everybody's got a life. Right? That's right. That's exactly right. Everybody has other things going on. So, yeah. Um, and 
there, uh, uh, the companies that I've worked with um, recently have been very respectful of the time that they, the time that when you're called, mm -hmm. um, you basically you're working when you're there. Good. Well, that's good. That's good. Because you know you hear stories that go otherwise, or you know a director thinks, well, you're a young actress. You know you're 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 available at any time. You know we're going to have a special rehearsal. You know here or or what have you. And mm -hmm. but it's good that uh, the respect is is definitely there. Um, to jump a bit into current events, or not necessarily theater, just raising a child. You know, you and I were talking off off mic about. Um, there's a lot of what I would call misogyny out, you know, in the world. I mean, there's Trump. I mean, I haven't even asked you how do you feel about, you know, the election. I, this is something that I've asked everyone. I mean, mm. did it shock you that Trump uh, is our 46th president? Um, in some ways, yes, it did shock me. In other ways, no, it doesn't. The the disconnect of the people in our country mm. and the different mm. mythologies that we carry as we're walking around um, are so, there's such a profound divide. Um, but there's also this, there's, uh, we all share this commonality of, of, of being aware that the situation that we're in is not so great. Yeah. Um, it, red, blue, it's, it doesn't matter. Right, um, right. Uh, Every, everyone has a sense of, of there needs to be there needs to be a change yeah and that like like that was the message that I got loud and clear from the rest of the country um, on what was it November 10th uh, yeah I think either the 10th or the 11th uh, it's it's um, we had Gary Graves on Gary Graves is uh, he runs um, uh, Central Works and I was in his class the day of the election and I kept telling people well, the early results are in, but those are the red states. Don't worry about it. You know, Hillary's going to win. Because I really felt people were smart enough to uh, to elect a competent person. And I really feel talking about misogyny, and it's it's a prevalent now because Hillary has a book now uh, called uh, What Happened. And there are a lot of people who are saying, you know, Hillary should just be quiet and, and what have you. Mm -hmm. But I think there's just so much misogyny. I mean, it's as if America just spat on the face of women mm -hmm. to say, well, it's not time yet. Uh, for a woman to be president, regardless of how you feel about Hillary Clinton. I mean, there are a lot of women who don't feel aligned with Hillary. Nonetheless, how, if she's establishment or not establishment, she was far more qualified than Donald Trump. Far Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, I completely agree. And if people had their heads rationally screwed on, then, yeah. then they would have made very different choices at the voting, yeah. uh, voting booth but that day. Did you take it hard as a woman, that, that Trump? I mean, did you feel like when I use the analogy, that, you know, spitting on the face of a woman, did, did you feel that way at all? Yes, but I wasn't surprised. Okay. Um, and it's... Um, it's in there. There is such a um, there's such an incredible experience being a woman when you um, when you grow up knowing what it's like to feel like a, a target or a piece of meat or sure, you know sure. when when there's a there's a certain level of um, uh, how do you say, like internalizing or def like defend, like creating defense mechanisms? Um, uh, a s every every woman deals with it and copes with it in, in a different way. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I'm neither surprised that the um, that the uh, that the unconscious of um, uh, of 
men and women in America rejected the idea of having a woman as president. Um, and yes, we can we can you know pay lip service to her being so establishment that she wouldn't have changed anything anyway. And there, I think that that was a part of the, that was a factor as well. But um, uh, but yeah, no, it's 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 it, it is sickening to um, to to know to know that the person who is in our highest office um, is. Uh, um, has been validated for um, uh, for all of his disgusting views. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think there's, I mean, just how I think, I think there's a bigger arc. Like, you know, this week, Nancy Pelosi was at a, uh, a meeting, I think, with uh, some of... Um, the administ- the uh, Trump staff, you know, the the um, the Democratic um, members of Congress are trying to work a deal with Trump to deal with uh, DACA. And you know, one point she said at the meeting, "Are women allowed to speak here?" Because she was making a point, and then a, a man just immediately jumped in and started talking. And she was like, "You know, are you interrupting me? You know, can a woman speak?" We have that. We have uh, Jamel Hill. Jamel Hill is a uh, ESPN analyst um, who made a tweet. On her own time, about Trump and uh, the you know Trump White House, uh, um, the spokesperson sh- um, said it was a fireable offense. Right, it said it was a fireable offense <laughs> without even condu- you know without consoling you know um, Trump, and now that's you know a big deal, and it's it, it just seems it seems um, okay to sort of shut a woman up or to still have this sort of male testosterone driven. I mean, we were talking about, you and I were talking about um, 12-year-old boys who uh, tried to hang an 8-year-old boy. You know, there's that. There's Antifa. There's the uh, the alt-right. Mm-hmm. There's this, I can even extend it to uh, North Korea uh, shooting a uh, yet another missile over Japan, where this, there's this male aggression uh, sort of dominating um the United States or, or the world as far as uh, this is what leadership is all about, manhood is all about. And you're raising a five-year-old boy. I mean, how do you raise him to not be, you know, uh, a butthole? Um, so there are so many different layers of that. I have this, uh, I have this, um, uh, I, I think about it and I think that there's kind of like a holy anger that needs to be awoken in people, um, and uh, and it's it's the defense of that which is holy. Um, mm-hmm. So these attacks on these attacks on uh, on women, on uh, people of color, on uh, people who people who come from different places. Um, it's people who live different lives, people who are the most vulnerable, people who are poor. There's there's so mm-hmm. there's so much vilification um, and. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and fear and hate that's happening, um, and and there's a there's also like a sort of um, uh, cowering and helplessness and like you know just just like the mild static of annoyed people, um, where where in fact it's um, it's actually um, uh, some of the most sacred things are being threatened, yeah, and, yeah. and as, they, as, as they have always been under threat, mm-hmm. um, but, and so to the degree that it is in the spotlight now, I'm very thankful, um, but, uh, but to the degree that it is being um, validated, that th- those views are being validated because of our leadership in this yeah, country, um, yeah. that is disgusting. Um, it's, uh, it's really 
um, it's profoundly unsettling to to think um, to think about um, all of the people who are able to um, vocalize that now. But again, you know, again that. Uh, mm-hmm bringing it out into the light is going to be the first step right. um, in, uh, in uh, disarming it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, that holy anger really needs to be woken up in a lot of people. And also, it, mm-hmm. there's, so much, um, there's so much unconscious um, uh, kind of uh, incorporating and acquiescing to it. Like in my own personal life, um, uh, when I was part of, uh, part of the kind of um, – uh, implicit agreement that I made um, with my partner, um, uh, my uh, my son's father, um, mm-hmm. was uh, was that I was going to s- so step back from my work, and I did, and I made that choice. I made that choice to prioritize being a mother mm-hmm. um, yeah. and and to be a stay at home mother, and yeah. it was and, and a lot of women do that. I mean, uh, yeah. A lot of women do that uh, do that because it is what they have been, you know. So, so I made that choice, mm-hmm. but without fully realizing what the cost was going to be to myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that was uh, an incredible um, experience for me because I, having been a very active, very ambitious person um, up until um, up until I had my son, mm-hmm. um, and then having to having to like hit all the breaks at once. Yeah. Um, uh, it was, there, there was a moment when my son was less than a year old and I was holding the American theater magazine, reading about, <laughs> um, reading about all of the, the, uh, virtuosos who were doing incredible things and, and just knowing how, like how far away sure. that life was yeah. Because, yeah. because of, because of this normative, um, relationship that I had entered into yeah. in terms of what I was going to choose to do and what the traditional roles were that I was taking on. And, and there's a, so that was a really very, very personal experience mm-hmm. that I had in terms of like living the, um, living that dynamic. Yeah. Um, yeah. and, uh, and it, um, uh, like it just totally brought home to me, um, I like I I was came f- to being a mother from a place from a very privileged place where I was able to to choose to do that without like having the economic burden but mm-hmm. knowing that knowing that the choice of becoming a mother mm-hmm. was going to shift my autonomy away yeah um uh and and that for so many women mm-hmm. that they they lose their autonomy and they become they become um, uh, lifelong. They become mothers to such a degree that they don't have autonomy to to well, sure. themselves, to educate themselves. Yeah, to, well, it's, it's as if they just fade themselves back, as if they 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 are defined by breeding. Yeah, and uh, and their place no, to no offense. I think mothering no, is no, also fine. like. I mean, you know, there's like an essential and, and sure. kind of sacred job. If, if it's something that you really, really want to do, that's fine. And with love, there is sacrifice. And there are people who sacrifice. Like I think about my grandmother. You know, all that she ever wanted to do was to take care of children. And mm-hmm. she was a lifelong. She had eight kids and even took care of the neighborhood kids. Mm-hmm. And that's something that she wanted to do. Mm-hmm. But I also think about my mother, my biological mom, who went to uh, secretarial school and she worked in a lot of her prestigious places in Washington, D.C. at a time where, you know, black women, you know, working at major offices, uh, you know, federal offices in Washington, D.C. was almost unheard of. But she was a mother and I was her only child. And, you know, when my parents separated, she had to scale it back. 
and take care of me. And I know how bitter she was. She was mm-hmm. very, very bitter. Um, and it's difficult because, you know, because you love your child and you want your child to have the best that they can and um, and not to not to project any of, of that, you know, right. of uh, all of that. You know, what do you do with all of that energy that mm-hmm. um, all of that ambition? You know, what do you do with what do you do with all of that energy that's that's being like stuck? Mm-hmm. Um, so that for me, that was one of the um, uh, the the most personal experience that I had in the gender imbalance yeah. and it was, it was the becoming a mother and it, and it brought home to me, like, what does it mean to have birth control? What does it mean to, That's because right. there are so many, um, uh, I'm, I may or I may be a little impulsive in my major life decisions. <laughs> um, so, so then I'll end up, I'll end up like doing the deep reflection on it as I'm living it. Sure. Um, sure. and, and there are a lot of, there are a lot of women who do that. Mm-hmm. Um, who well, a lot of women who don't even have any choice. They don't have a choice in the matter at all, especially mm-hmm. when it comes to having a child. I mean, you know, you hear, oh, well, one thing led to another and so-and-so was born. Sometimes I translate it as, it sounds like a man wanted you to have sex. You did, and, you know, he impregnated you. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of people don't have that option. They don't have the option of choosing to have an abortion right. or, yeah, their bodies are not yeah. their their bodies are not their own. Especially with uh, Trump and the Republicans uh, wanting to shut down pl- Planned Parenthood. Mm-hmm. And I actually made a donation to pran- Planned Parenthood today. Go uh, you. <laughs> it's important. It's very, very important. I remember my I had a girlfriend. One of the most important lessons I learned, I had a girlfriend when I was at, uh, I think, my last year at NYU. And she dragged me to a Planned Parenthood. And she was like, listen, you know, I've got to take these tests. I want you to, to be with me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay. And I was a little weird, weirded out. But it's something that I needed to, to, to go through uh, as a 20-year-old guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, uh, having a uterus is a, is a big deal. Yeah, like it, and there's uh, there was a really great um, uh, book. Uh, uh, so many so many women have have thought about this, but there was a, a wonderful book that I read a while ago about um, the balance or imbalance of uh, of parenting on mothers, um, and uh, and her <laughs> one of her great takeaways was um, it will always be imbalanced as long as women have uteruses and mammary mammary glands because you got to grow that baby and you got to feed that baby. So. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, there there is a fundamental imbalance, and 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 if you have, if you don't have a choice mm-hmm. in terms of becoming a parent or n- not, um, right? You know that the y- most people are not thinking rationally and long term planning wise when they're having sex, or so it's, but it's essential. Like it's essential, of course, um, uh, absolutely. And yeah, the sovereignty over one's body is fundamental to to the serenity over one's life. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and communication, you know, now, um, um, you know, my memory is so bad. Your son. Um, he's of the age where you can actually talk to him. I mean, uh, he's five years old. He, he just said that he... Uh, he it, um, his, was this his first day of school or is this first year of school now? Uh, no, he's been, uh, he's been in, like... Preschool. Oh, preschool. Preschools for a while. But he's in kindergarten now, yeah, right? Yeah, he's in kindergarten. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's like that's like the big school. But um, you can but you can talk to him now. I mean, you can almost have like a conversation. You can actually exchange thoughts mm-hmm. with him. Um, and, and that's important. I mean, uh, how do you – do you talk about 
he's probably too young, but do you talk about current events or what's happening, or yeah, does he convey absolutely. those to you? Yeah, we talk a lot. Um, we talk a lot, and I uh, we we get into we get into big questions a lot. Uh, like mm. there was um, r- when we're talking w- when I Marius, yeah, Marius. Yes. Um, so uh, we have had conversations about like why are there fewer women firefighters? Why are there mm. you know why are there fewer women astronauts? And and so I would go into um, I would go into like the big concepts about peop- a lot of people have ideas, old ideas that are, mm-hmm. you know, about women being able to or not being able to do certain things. Right. Um, and that those ideas die hard. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so, so I absolutely talk to him about these sort of things. Yeah. But he absorbs everything. He absorbs he absorbs it when, when his peers, you know, the, the, the girls. It's fascinating because it, like even as young as three years old, they're already, um, they're already like aligning with different color schemes and different like clothing things. And mm. I, I think I think he was like two and a half or three, and I was yeah. like, "Hey, Marius, if you ever wanted to wear like we, we got on the subject of clothes, and yeah, um, and he's, he mentioned that his pants were uncomfortable, and I said, well, you can wear a skirt if you want to wear a skirt.' And yeah, like, yeah. I don't want to wear a skirt. <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny that you mentioned that. We um, at at our office, I work for the DA's office. We had a bias. Awareness training, mm-hmm. uh, mainly for the attorneys and for the invest for the for the folks who make the decisions, um, in prosecutorial decisions, and uh, the person talked about how bias is is created at a very very early mm-hmm. age, and I'm yes. sure you see that. Yes, absolutely, yeah. and and the the way that the children children opt in and opt out of certain things because. Because they perceive them in different ways. Like, mm-hmm. why Like why is art less favorable, you know, more favorable to girls? Like, why? Mm-hmm. Um, and boys are more likely to be, you know, playing with Nerf guns. Like, what? what is what is it, you know, what is it about projectiles that <laughs> yeah. is so attractive <laughs> to the boys? And Maybe it's phallic. I don't know. <laughs> oh, there's, yeah, probably validity there. Um, but, uh um, but it's very interesting, and then and then those those patterns become kind of uh, uh, mm-hmm. codified, and yeah. then and then it be, and then they become identities. And um, unless you catch it, I mean, I don't know if you need to catch it or whatever, but at least identify it. And, and if if this is going to be a part of your identity, whatever that bias is, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, certain biases. I mean, I like chocolate ice cream. I don't like vanilla ice cream. I mean, you know, that's not a problem, mm-hmm. but. Especially in certain regions, I mean, you know, being biased against, let's say, a race or a culture. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's one of the great things about the Internet is that we're so open. I mean, I, I really do think that bias and, and, and racism needs isolation to grow. I mean, I've always mm-hmm. felt that way because mm-hmm. if, you know, let's say if, if a white person grows up in strictly a white um, neighborhood and they've never seen a black person, it's easy to spew, you know, uh, lies and innuendo or whatever. Mm-hmm. Because you can never corroborate it, mm-hmm. but now with the internet, you can actually speak to someone who's who's Asian or who's Latino or who's gay or or, or what have you. I mean, the world's just opened up. It's I think it's gotten less a uh, lot less. It's gotten more difficult. I think for racism to exist. Although, as I say that, we still see examples, you know, horrible examples of it. Yeah, it also the internet also creates positive feedback loops, you know, in different echo chambers where yeah. people are able to to kind of uh, feed off of their own hateful That's ideas. That's true. Um, That's true. Internet clicks, you know. Yeah. People, yeah. 
Um, but with, in terms of like giving my son the option, it's, it's so interesting because in him, I see like the Petri dish of culture mm. of our society, you know, of the culture that he's been raised in. I see, yeah. I see him, um, uh, kind of showing, showing back what the fundamental, um, elements are mm-hmm. of that. Um, uh, but, uh, but at least he knows that it's an option. It's a, you, these are ideas that he is choosing. Like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not going to try and, and un, uh, you know, like reprogram him yeah. from, from who he is and the decisions that he makes, but mm-hmm. just so that he's very clear that, he, as you said, that those are his choices. Right. He does not, he 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 can choose to wear pants, or if he wants a skirt, we'll go get a skirt. Yeah, yeah, that's you know, right. If, yeah. He, if he would like a pink shirt, he can have a pink shirt. <laughs> yep, yep, that's not a problem at all. He, I will, I will even put a pink shirt in his drawer. <laughs> uh, but, but I really believe that children are not born evil. I don't think anyone is born evil, and I think evil has to be learned. So uh, mm. it's it's good that. Um, that, that you're monitoring that you guys are talking. It's interesting that he would bring up subject matters like, you know, why are there less women astronauts and stuff like that. It mm-hmm. shows that he's he's attentive to that. So that's good. It's mm-hmm. a very good thing. Yeah. Yeah, and to be frank and to be honest about the the um, uh, the imbalances and the, the the parts of our society that are still really broken. Yeah. Um, yeah. So helping him to under like. I feel very grateful that I'm able to identify with him. Like, mm-hmm. This is what's happening, yeah. but it's broken. Right, right, exactly. So, yeah, and this is one of the main reasons it's broken. Yeah. So. I remember growing up, you know, like um, I think in uh, 76, you know, I think Jimmy Carter had uh, won the presidency and I was seven years old. But Nixon was in the newspapers all the time. And I remember asking my parents, hey, what, what in the world is going on? And even tragedies like the uh, the Atlanta child murders that happened uh, in the uh, late seventies, mm. and that was something big. When um, when you talk to Mar- does does Morris take in the things that are happening? Like in Berkeley, there was the uh, the. As a matter of fact, this weekend there's going to be a, another um, right. Um, th- maybe a, uh, not a riot, but uh, another uh, march protest thing going mm-hmm. on. Does he absorb? Does he see any of that stuff? Is he paying attention, or maybe he maybe he's just a kid? He just wants to play, so maybe he's not paying attention at all yeah. to these things. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, all of that is true. Um, so uh, I brought him to his first rally. Um, okay. Uh, two a week, two weeks ago, mm-hmm. um, uh, to the DACA rally at the federal building, um, and uh, and you know it's really it's tricky to to explain to him like what. Like why? Like why do? Why are? Why are we? Why are we calling people illegal and uh, mm. rejecting children? Like, mm, yeah. So so it's very. He gets what's wrong when you say that. When you say that mommies and daddies brought their ch- it's brought their children here to America to have a better life. Right. Um. And uh. And, and then the disconnect of like, but why? Why are you, why are you going to send them back to a place where they could get murdered? Right, like, right, what? exactly. So, so the the um, uh, the big ideas, putting them in a form that is simple enough mm-hmm. um, for him to to um, uh, to understand, um, without getting into like immigration policies and all of the nuances of how that's broken. And oh, sure, yeah, the things that can go straight over his head. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. and so. <laughs> I love him because mm-hmm. sometimes I'll sometimes I'll just keep going, <laughs> and he'll be like, "Mom, what made us start talking about?" This? <laughs> 
Yeah, that's when you know that you've hit the ceiling. <laughs> but, you know, that only means it's seven or eight, you know, because there are a lot of things that you know, my dad or my mom will talk to me about, and it went over his head, my head, but I'll still retain it. And maybe a little bit later on I'll still ask about it. So hopefully he'll do the same thing. Yeah, yeah. And it's there's so much that's happening. Um, yeah. And, uh, and it, it is important to, to, to make sure that he understands some of it, but I also – um, uh, I also have to to be aware that his like I want to make sure that the world that he that he perceives mm-hmm. um, that he's not in direct contact with, but the world that he perceives is one um, that has a lot of room for um, for hope and for growth and for that's good. Um, that's good. And and it, it, it's it's tricky when you yeah. know, when the things that are on my mind are I think it's not important. exactly hopeful. Yeah, no, it's important to believe. It's important to have have um, to know that there's still goodness in the world and that you can make goodness in the world. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, so what I want to ask you about, um, I, when I was talking with Susan, this is sort of a director question. Um, mm. We were talking about the director as an artist. I mean, uh, the pieces that you bring on. Let's say you, you tell a company, hey, I, I really like this piece that I want to do. It's a form of art. I mean, you know, the very fact that you're bringing on a piece and that you want to convey mm-hmm. a message to an audience. Um do you have any thoughts about that? I mean, have there been times where you've brought a piece on and let's say you wanted the audience to sort of get it and maybe they don't get it or let's say you've totally confused the audience um, hmm. or maybe do you care? Oh, yeah, I, yeah. I absolutely care. Um, uh, so Lifetime Street 3 is a, an interesting example because it, mm-hmm. was, um, uh, it was a piece that I well, – usually when I take on a, direct mm-hmm. or, a project to direct – By Yasmin Reza, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, so usually when I take on a project to direct, it's not it, it it's because the pieces come to life uh, come alive to me in mm-hmm. multiple ways, and because there is a there's a personal connection that I have to the piece. Right. Um, so uh, and also vivid like vivid stage pictures as well um, uh, are are really essential to me in when when I'm working on a piece. So and that goes back to. Our, near the beginning of our conversation, you'd like using the body as a full, you know, as a full instrument, a full mm-hmm. piece of the vocabulary. Right. Um, uh, so having that, uh, having that expressivity is really important. Oh, golly, what was the question? Oh, I was asking, um, as, as a, so as a director, you know, you were, yeah, like for, for the audience to be confused or sure. for, for it to be clear. So right. I actually, I really like pieces that have ambiguity to them, mm-hmm. like Harold Pinter and Riza, um, and, uh, and Goethe, um, and that have that have gray areas. Mm-hmm. That um, uh, Duchamp has this really great quote that I'm going to paraphrase badly: <laughs> um, that the art happens between the audience and the work. It's yeah. it's the it is what the person takes from it. Mm-hmm. So um, so I don't and my my mentors trained me not to don't don't be too on the nose. You you can't tell somebody what to think. You um, if it's important that it's clear here mm-hmm. great make sure it's clear and if it and if it and if it's important for there to be space mm-hmm. here in a space in terms of letting the audience interpret or letting the audience bridge that gap right um make sure there's space um and and make sure that that you understand the tone of the piece so that you're able to to create places for the audience you audience to rest mm-hmm. in, in a certainty and to be unsettled in the question and you know what is what's the piece that you're doing what what is the 
what's the you know what's the point what's the um, what is the audience yes because you you have mm-hmm. to understand um, is it a piece where you're where you're going to give um, like Matisse uh, are you going to let them sit in an armchair mm-hmm. you know will will your art be like comfortable and entertaining and pleasing right or is your art going to be unsettling is the piece unsettling is it is it does it ask questions all the time. Right. Uh, one of the reasons I actually find modern dance very difficult is mm-hmm. because um, I'm constantly trying to figure out what's happening. <laughs> like, sure, sure. What, what is the meaning? What are you telling me? Yeah. Um, which, which activates the audience. I mean, if it's too easy, I mean, if you're watching Oklahoma, you're not really thinking about anything. It's just, okay, there it is. There's a performance mm-hmm. or a sitcom. But if you're constantly wondering, okay, what in the world is going on? I mean, all of a sudden your abstract mind starts mm-hmm. thinking. It's like, well, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. And that in itself is good. I mean that in itself is Yeah, it's yeah. it's like a dash of that. You know, it's like your vermouth. You don't want to you don't want to have a drink of vermouth. <laughs> right. But you wanna have enough of that so mm-hmm. that there's complexity, so that there's so that there are questions. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I do I also believe in taking care of the audience and making sure that they're not exhausted or frustrated by by too much ambiguity. So um, there uh, there's a balance. Um, yeah, you don't want to punish the audience. I mean, you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I'm uh, but the, like Riza was a really great example. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a lot of the audience walked away with different ideas about mm-hmm. what what the intermittent movement pieces were, what were the interstitial movement pieces about. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and that uh, that was great. I love that because because the majority of audience members who um, who watched the piece, the, the entire play, um, they had ideas about what those interstitial movement pieces meant. Mm-hmm. And that's great. Yeah, Please do. Exactly. I mean, even when I was uh, stage managing it, just uh, the main character and uh, his, well, what I perceived, the, the male character, and his fascination with the Higgs bosom, mm-hmm. because he, in, in the play, the plot, a little bit of the plot is, basically there are three uh, acts, there are three scenes in um, Lifetimes 3. Basically, it repeats itself over and over as if uh, there's sort of a loop. Um, yeah, there are implications of chaos theory. Mm-hmm. There are uh, there are um, uh, other implications as well about the, the multiverse. Um, what what if you take this particular scenario, these given circumstances, and you set them off in one direction or then in another? And so, mm-hmm. so in between those uh, in between those three very different um, yeah. uh, unravelings of the same given circumstances, mm-hmm. um, uh, there there were movement explorations. Um, yep, that's so, exactly right. So, um, and I, you know, I of course as the director had very clear ideas about <laughs> what exactly was being communicated in those movement sequences, but did, did the audience really need to know that I was thinking about electrons, you know, like jumping electrons? No, mm-hmm. they did not. <laughs> and that's okay. Well, I'm sure some, some, I'm sure some folks got it, and even if they didn't, I mean, you know, and, and, and then there's the actual text, uh, the plot, where you have a man and woman and uh, a child, Arno, in the, in the background, but you have a man who's driven by his thoughts, and you have people who have different objectives and are even distracted by their own desires and little things that are just happening, um, which can be a, an analogy of protons, electrons, and neutrons, you know, sort of just scattering all over the place. Sure, sure. sure. I mean, you can, you can kind of put an abstract lens on almost anything, which is so exciting. Yeah. Yes. So you so you felt that you conveyed exactly what you wanted in that piece. Um, 
As far as the audience, when I had Susan Evan on, uh, we were talking about Mayakovsky's The Bedbug, and she had placed The Bedbug on, and I still have fond memories of it, and it was also very complex and very abstract. Uh, It was a play written, I think, in the 20s about the writer's belief of what will happen in the future. I think he was writing about 1970, but from a 1920s perspective. And we were cogs, and we were machines, and there were some strange things going on. And, you know, the audience were a little confused, and uh, Susan's like, well, you know, I kind of wish the audience sort of got it, and maybe maybe they didn't get it or whatever. Um, but being confused isn't, isn't so bad. I mean, do you feel that, you know, you accomplished what you wanted to accomplish? Yes, I did. Um, the The way that the play, so the text is is very linear and, and self explanatory. So, mm-hmm. um, so the the audience had a great deal of uh, places to rest in, right. in a conventional narrative structure. Right. Um, and it was it, it was pretty delightful to have just. I mean, it, relatively, um, the movement pieces were very small mm-hmm. um, in that, and um, and it was uh, kind of like. Um, I imagine them more like palate cleansers almost, mm-hmm. um, or, or rather, um, uh, uh, instead of going back to a zero, the neutral was the question. Yeah. Uh, so, so in that in that particular piece, mm-hmm. um, when we when we returned back to the canvas, the canvas was this fluctuating question mark, mm-hmm. which was great. That that was exactly what I wanted to do, um, and in terms of an audience experience, it was also really satisfying because they. They had a nice mixture of um, of different flavors. So. Yeah, that was awesome. It was it was a great experience. So and that, and that was uh, very very good. So we've hit the hour mark. Um, any last buttons? Any uh, thing that you are you working on? Anything? Anything that you want to advertise? Um, yeah, so I'm I'm currently working with the Speakeasy right now. Okay. Um, and uh, I just completed a, a run as Charlotte Clutter, which was uh, which is the writer character, and she's a, a wonderful character. Um, uh, she's a feminist, and she writes uh, erotic fiction, and um, and she's she's fabulous. Um, uh, a bold meta narrative character, and um, and she. Uh, so I just completed um, a run with her, and. I'm working on another character, Lois Long, at the Night at the Palace, which is also in the same venue as the nice. Speakeasy. And, uh, and where is the Speakeasy? I, it is at an undisclosed location. <laughs> oh, okay. In, uh, North Beach, Chinatown. Yeah. But is, is there a website that you can go to? Oh, yeah. Um, the Speakeasy SF, uh, dot com. Okay. So. Um, I'll have a link on it uh, on the uh, on the A. Yeah. And, uh, and I am uh, scheduled in December to... Um, uh, to learn an, uh, to I'm learning another role, uh, Dorothy, um, and I, and I'll be playing her later on the, in this year or mm-hmm. I think next year. So, awesome! That that's going to be fantastic. And, and what a fantastic uh, you know, like as an actress, you get to play multiple multiple roles. When does the speakeasy end? It sounds like it's going through the rest well, of the year. Well, if people keep buying tickets, uh-huh. uh, it's if people keep buying tickets, then it will continue going. Awesome. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. Well, we'll definitely uh, advertise it and put a link on there. Fantastic. Uh, thank you so much. Hope yeah, you had a wonderful time. I did. <laughs> cool. Let me give you my usual blurb. Uh, you can find the Yay on the Apple Podcast app and on all iPhones and iPads. You just find the Yay. You can also find the Yay on iTunes. Just click on iTunes, click on Store, use the search engine on the upper left-hand side, and cl- search for the Yay, and you'll find us. 
For Android users, download the SoundCloud app and search for The Yay. The Yay was created by theater people for theater people. If you have a show you want to advertise or you just want to advertise yourself, let us know. Hit us up on Facebook and we will take it from there. And that's it. And it's late, so uh, I don't want to keep you away. Uh, Morris, who's who's watching Morris? Do you have a uh, caregiver or someone watching? Uh, his dad is with him. Yeah. Oh, okay. We're, uh, cool. yeah. <laughs> his dad is a, is great. He, he has enabled my theater, my, all of my theater adventures. So. Awesome. Awesome. That's fantastic. And that is it. And we are out.